Before we get to today's show, I'd like to invite you to become a part of this show. If you have hiked the John Muir Trail, whether you section hiked it or through hiked it, or if you intend to hike it in the future, then give us a call, 818-925-0106, and please leave a voicemail telling us a little bit about your experience, a memory, a hardship, what you're looking forward to, or how it affected your life positively or even negatively. At the end of this season, I am hoping to collect these voice messages and edit them into an episode focused on the John Muir Trail. So if you would like to potentially have your voicemail appear on the show, call us up, 818-925-0106. Leave us your name, whether that is your real name or your trail name, where you are located, and give us your thoughts within three minutes about the John Muir Trail. Thank you ahead of time, and let's get to the show. Everybody. Welcome to episode 90 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today we are speaking to Liz Snorkel Thomas. She is a long distance hiker, urban hiker, editor in chief of Treeline Review, and the author of a book many of you may already be familiar with Long Trails Mastering the Art of the Through Hike. And in addition to all of those things, she also is a researcher of long-distance hiking trails, conservation, and the trail town communities affected by these trails. A quick note for those listening, she does reference FKTs a few times, and if you are not familiar with that term, it basically stands for Fastest Known Times. And it is a term you will come across anytime you research record holders or people attempting records on any long distance trail. So let us go now to a park in Pasadena in late July and have a conversation with Liz Thomas. I am Liz Snorkel Thomas. I am a long distance hiker and an author and an urban long distance hiker and also editor of a gear review site, Treeline Review. First thing we have to get out of the way is snorkel, which I'm sure you <laughs> right. expect. Because hiking isn't something that you usually associate with a snorkel. So how did you get that name? And is that a trail name or is that just a nickname? That is my trail name. And it's funny because lots of people know me only as snorkel and they might be following me on Instagram for a while and they're like oh I've been following you for a year I didn't realize you were snorkel and I'm like seriously <laughs> so with long distance hiking through hiking I think long distance hiking is a more encompassing broad term people take on these personas I guess it's a little bit like Burning Man you take a name that represents you and oftentimes it's based on something funny you've done or said or it's something that maybe you wish no one knew about you. <laughs> <laughs> so you can reject. If someone calls you a trail name and you're like, no, I don't want to be known as that. I don't want that story to live on. You can just not answer to it. <laughs> but with the trail name Snorkel, when I was on the Appalachian Trail the first time that I through hiked it, I would stick my head in my sleeping bag and people would joke that I would need a snorkel to stick up out of the top. Oh, really? That's what I was trying to figure out where I thought it came from. And I thought maybe like, well, maybe she like goes into rivers a lot to try to <laughs> retrieve things like maybe she brought a snorkel one time but it's just because you cover your head with your sleeping bag yeah you might want this longer story so the longer story <laughs> is that i started the appalachian trail without a sleeping bag at all oh great idea uh because i mean i'd been to georgia once it was hot the appalachian trail in general is a pretty hot trail and I thought, okay, I'll be fine without a sleeping bag. I'll just bring like a very thin, I actually snagged the blanket on my red eye flight from California <laughs> out to Georgia. It took about 
three nights to realize that was a bad idea. So I bought a sleeping bag. 500 miles in, I saw that same sleeping bag. It was super expensive. It was like top of the line for sale at a gear store and noticed it was fluffy and warm. I was like, what gives? I just dropped a lot of money on this bag. They said it would last 10 years and mine's all sad and deflated. Yours is floofy and warm looking. They were like, well, did you get it wet? And I was like, no, no, I've been very protective. Do you stick your head in your sleeping bag? Yeah, I've got to keep my face warm. <laughs> so they said, well, you need a snorkel to stick out the top. Your breast is condensing the down. Really? Just I, the I, moisture. I, I from... never was aware this was a thing. Me too, because on the West Coast, California in particular, the air is dry enough that having your bag out in the air will take care of that little bit of moisture. But on the East Coast, with the humidity, plus a little breath in the air from being down in the sleeping bag the whole time, it just piles up over time. Yeah, I've never had that problem, but I mostly am using it in the West because I also cover my face with the bag all the time, mostly just to keep the light out. Like if I get to sleep late and then I'm going to wake up late and I don't want the sun keeping me awake, I'll just cover my face to avoid that. So in really humid environments, it can tear up your down. Yeah, just over time, the little tendrils of the down get compressed with that extra bit of moisture in there. You know, drying out a sleeping bag every day when you can is a good practice too. That wasn't something I was doing. So I always tell people my trail name comes with a bit of a gear management lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Even when I'm on a thru-hike, about half the people I've talked to will say, oh, I've never heard of that before, that additional moisture adding to sleeping bag down compression. So... It's kind of a neat educational lesson there. So now I'm curious about this. That was people at a gear shop? That yeah, that? that was so a So did they outfitter. give you that name? Or did you tell that story to I someone else? I told that else? story okay. and then people said, oh, you've got to run with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's too good. I never did actually carry a snorkel. I changed my practices. I feel like you should. I feel like it's an obligation (laughs) at this point. Because you've kept that name. You said that's the first time you hiked the AT. Have you carried that name? Because clearly you keep using that name and you use it like online and various other things. But when you've done other long distance trails, is that how you've introduced yourself or have you gotten new trail names? I've kept that trail name. Some people will change their trail name from trail to trail or change trail names at different periods in their life. This name is... You know, for better or worse, it's it's kind of become me or I've become it. That's great because you've got this permanent name now that has nothing to do with hiking that you're just always going to be associated with. At some point, people are going to start calling you thinking you're like a scuba diver or like a someone who takes people out and snorkeling trips. I'm a little worried about that because I would say I'm a water phobe necessarily, a hydrophobe. So but it's a perfect name for you. <laughs> I guess so. So we've already kind of gotten into the fact that you've done the AT, which for anyone that doesn't know is the Appalachian Trail, right? It goes all the way from Georgia to Maine, right? It's like 2,600. About 2,200. 2,200 miles. So that's one of three largely known long distance trails in the U.S. But let's talk about Liz before that. Let's talk about how Liz went from you, wherever you were born, however you grew up, to a person who started doing these long distance hikes and how you got associated with that. Yeah, so I grew up in Sacramento. Neither one of my parents are particularly outdoorsy, but I had a first grade teacher who was really into the environment, to taking kids out spending time in nature. And that was when I really got introduced to this idea of like, hey, it's kind of fun to spend time outside. So I loved it so much that for my third grade birthday party, I invited everyone in the class for my birthday to go on a hike at this little nature reserve that had like one mile of trails, lots of invasives. But this was like my nature spot. And because I wanted to see all the animals, when's the best time to see the animals? 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) So surprisingly, some kids did show up at 5.30 in the morning with their parents (laughs) to go on a hike. And, you know, I never really was super more outdoorsy when I was growing up. But as I came to college, which was here in Southern California, we've got these great mountains here. And it was really through professors and college outdoor clubs that I started getting more and more and more into hiking to the point where it wasn't those sort of hikes I wanted to do. I couldn't recruit other people to do it necessarily with me all the time. So I started doing solo stuff. And that's how I first learned about the Pacific Crest Trail going from Mexico to Canada. I was like, that would be pretty neat something I want to do. So you're female and you just mentioned solo hiking. So I know for (laughs) a fact people started harassing you. As soon as you were like, well, I don't want anybody to go. I'm going to go solo. How many people gave you a hard time for that? I think maybe I didn't tell a lot of people. So I would like, I mean, now when I think about it, I'm like, man, that was really hardcore for like 19 year old me to climb Mount Baldy at like five in the morning solo, starting in the dark on a weekday, uh, you know, before class or before work. 
so I didn't really tell people. I was just like, oh, you know, I was up on the mountain. No one really seemed to ask that much. So I think maybe I went through this period in my life when there might have been a lot of skeptics where, like, people just didn't know. Just and didn't I didn't really think about it. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> even now, at 41 years old, when I mentioned I'm going to do something by myself, people are like, oh, no, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. And it's like, I'll be all right. And we live in a time where there's enough technology that I can let people know if there's a problem. Right. So you joined all these college clubs. You forced kids to hike with you at dawn when you're eight years old and you just kind of kept with this as you went along so you heard about the pct was that the first long distance trail you did did you build up towards that or did you just throw yourself into it you know my first long distance trail was the appalachian trail i had planned on setting aside that time for the pacific crest trail and didn't actually end up work out with timing with other things i had going on so it was kind of like well i've got this time what trail can i start hiking this early and the appalachian trail was it But I would say that when I first started long distance hiking, like I really didn't have that much backpacking experience at all. Yeah, you didn't even bring a sleeping bag. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of my warm up was the Tahoe Rim Trail, 165 miles. I really, really loved that. That was kind of the trip where I was like, okay, I need to lighten up quite a bit, which is why I didn't carry a sleeping bag because that seemed like a great way to cut out some weight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's some other decisions you could have made before you cut that one. Yeah, so let's talk about that. How old were you when you went ahead and jumped into this Appalachian Trail trip. And this is the same one where you got the snorkel name, right? So this right. Is the, yeah. uh, I was 22. 22. Okay. And you started north or south? I started in Georgia. You started in Georgia. And let's hear about what that trip was like and what that experience was like. Because, so you did Tahoe, which you said is 160? 165. 165. But now you're going to do 15, 16 times that. And how many months did you spend out there? I was there for 100 days. 100 days, right. So a little over three months. Right. So that's got to be a bit of a lifestyle change and a little bit of a culture shock. So let's talk about that experience it was like. I hadn't actually spent very much time on the East Coast at all before the Appalachian Trail. So that was a bit of a culture shock, just I mean, forests that are deciduous and green Mm -hmm. and rain during the summer and humidity. That was all kind of a bit of a culture shock for me. The trails go straight up and down, even though the Appalachian Trail is shorter than the Pacific Crest Trail or even the Continental Divide Trail. Pacific Crest Trail goes to 13,000 feet. Continental Divide goes to 14,000. Highest point on the AT is like 6,000, and it still has more elevation gain than these longer trails that go at higher yeah, elevations. I've heard that about it, that it's particularly steep at points. You know, from my opinion, it's like pointlessly up and down, <laughs> but there's kind of a beauty to it. You know, it's like hill training. So that was also a shock. And the trails are like, some points, especially up north in Maine, are hand over hand, like there's rebar, like ladders that you climb. You know, I always tell people from the West Coast, we would call this like a third class trail at points, minor rock climbing, because you're going up these like boulders and slabs. And I can't even imagine how bad they would be when they're icy. They're like wet most of the time anyway. You're climbing waterfalls. So that was all from a hiking perspective, very different. But yeah, the sort of hiking culture, it comes into your blood. It becomes a routine. And I would say most through hikers, when they come back from an experience like that, it's a really hard transition. It's a hard transition in with the blisters and the bites. And I actually got Lyme disease on the AT. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, uh, towards the end, I was feeling like I was moving a little bit slower. I had weird aches and pains in my neck and joints. And I kept thinking, oh, you know, that's just a symptom of thru-hiking because I'd never done thru-hiking before. Like, it was obvious every day I was doing something super exhausting. Like, of course things would hurt. Mm -hmm. But it kept feeling the same a month after I'd finished and I really wasn't super active. And a friend was like, hey, you should get this checked out. Sure enough, I get a phone call. It's like, your test came in. You really have Lyme disease. Go pick up your antibiotics right now. Yeah, and if you treat it early enough, you can eradicate it, right? Or does it remain regardless? That is my understanding. I haven't researched it as hardcore as a lot of people. I feel like I got lucky. As far as I know, everything's gone. But there's a lot of unknowns about Lyme disease Mm -hmm. and not a ton of research. So I hope everything's okay. Knock on (laughs) picnic table. That's one I'm always worried that I secretly have and I should test myself (laughs) more because I definitely don't want to develop that. So one of the things I know that people talk about, particularly with long distance hikes and AT being one of them, is kind of the unexpected social aspect of it. And I know in that one, there are a lot of shelters people share together. So you said you were 22, right, at the time? So you're kind of going into it. It's your first real experience with that. So 
did you expect that social aspect? No, and I always tell people that's one of the big surprises about long distance hiking. And actually, shameless plug for my book, but <laughs> I have a book called Long Trails, Mastering the Art of the Thru-Hike. And one of the things that I think makes it different, there's not a lot of how-to books on thru-hiking, but one of the things that makes my book a little bit different is talking about the social aspect because when we think about backpacking we think bears and rain and lightning and snow and all of these very natural phenomena so much of through hiking is this social aspect and in some way you need to know how to navigate that social aspect as well as being able to navigate the trail that was a huge surprise for me. Yeah, I imagine there's going to be a variety of personalities that you're going to stumble across just like in day-to-day life. And although I imagine for the most part, people typically are happier and friendlier in that environment, there's also plenty of opportunity for people to be miserable because they've been hot and they've been hungry and various other things. So did you find yourself navigating any weird circumstances or for the most part were people particularly helpful, especially since you were pretty young at the time and yeah. pretty inexperienced? People were generally really, really helpful. And that was one of the really great surprises. And I think increasingly our society has so few opportunities to interact with people who are different than us. People will meet people through school or through work. And usually when we meet people through those ways, we have a lot of similarities on our mindset. And on the trail, it's just kind of like the only similarity we have is the idea of walking and being outside for five months sounds fun. Right. This sounds like a good idea to me. And in some ways, it kind of self-selects a group of people who you're probably going to become friends with. You probably have some stuff in common with. But I mean, I've met people from all over the country, all ages, all over the world, really, all ages, all backgrounds all political spectrums and that's one of the things I love about long distance hiking is you never really know who you're going to meet sometimes conversations can get uncomfortable but something about also being in that situation where you're hiking you don't have to hurry home you don't have to take care of the kids you don't have to make dinner you don't have to it's like you have the time to really talk to people Mm -hmm. yeah it's very much that campfire thing like sometimes you can have deeper conversations around a campfire than most anywhere else because you don't have an obligation of something to do immediately afterwards yeah in some ways it's even more so than a campfire because like the campfire you're like all right i'm going to bed now if conversation (laughs) gets awkward whereas like i guess you could be like okay i'm gonna sit on the trail and wait until you get out of here but a lot of times it's like well I've got to keep heading north. You've got to keep heading north. There's only one trail, so we can either keep talking to each other or awkwardly, like, not say anything and keep hiking with each other. So this is your first big trail. I'm sure you went in with particular expectations. So once you reached the end, how did you feel about your expectations versus the reality of the situation? It was so much grander than I ever could have imagined. I had done a fair amount of climbing mountains in the Sierra and also here in Southern California, but... Something about the day-to-day and that rhythm and that routine, it really changed a lot of how I thought about the world and how I thought about people and what I valued and how I wanted to spend my time. So then where do you decide to go from there? Clearly you decide you like this, you like the experience, you like what you gain from it. So what happens next? One of the reasons why I hiked the Appalachian Trail before the Pacific Crest Trail is because I was starting grad school in August. So I went straight to grad school, having had this incredible experience. And in some ways, I think it was good because having something to do after, uh, I mean, a lot of people like finding a job and finding housing, well, finding housing was hard anyway, but like post-hike depression is, is or, or at least the blues, depression might be a bit far, is a real thing that happens to a lot of people. So I went to grad school and I had wanted to study wildlife in Africa. And after hiking the Appalachian Trail, I was like, no, I actually want to study long distance trails and some of the land management policy that goes into making these long distance trails. It's fascinating. There's so many different players. I was studying environmental policy, so I could still say I was studying environmental policy, but it was just domestic instead of international. So yeah, the Pacific Crest Trail was on my mind. And I went and hiked it that next year as part of my research. Quote, unquote. It, it was it was research. The, the work that I did from that Pacific Crest Trail hike ended up getting published and quite a few scholars reached out to me about it. But my main goal for doing that research was hiking. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the particulars of this hike. So you've done the AT on the East Coast where it's green and steep but not as high. Now you're back into the environment you're used to on the West Coast where it's dry until it's not <laughs> and high and sometimes steep and sometimes not. What was the difference hiking the PCT versus the AT? 
the first thing that I noticed is the AT, when you see a mountain, you know you're going over. If you see a mountain on the horizon, you're like, oh, man, that's going to be an awful climb. And on the PCT, you see a mountain, and that was the first thing I thought, like 20 miles in. I was like, oh, no, that thing looks <laughs> awful. I have to go up it. This is going to be the worst. It's so hot. And the PCT is designed in a way that it's less than 10% great because it's designed to be shared with horses, which the AT is not. And horses, like, will die if they're going up more than 10% grade. <laughs> That's one great thing about the PCT is that grade makes it so that you can do more miles per day, which you need to do because the PCT is longer and has a, a shorter weather window. And then in regards to just climate differences and uh, maybe trail culture, did you find differences there as well? Yeah. So, I mean, the PCT goes through six distinct ecological zones. And some people say it's the most geologically diverse trail in the world. I was used to hiking in Southern California, deserty sort of like that was like, okay, people were freaking out because they were, had to carry like six liters of water. I'm like, yep, that's, that's <laughs> what you do sometimes. Sometimes that's what you have to do. Or on the AT, you can hike all day. On the PCT, people will get up really early, take a siesta, and then hike late just to deal with the heat. People carry these like shiny silver umbrellas to keep out the sun. So that's a big difference for a lot of people. I think for me, dealing with Sierra Snow was a big issue. I dealt with some snow when I was hiking peaks and day after day, every single mile being covered with snow and the river crossings. Because most PCT hikers go through the Sierra in June, which is really, really early to be going through. So that was like a big eye-opener for me because all of my Sierra hiking had been more or less like perfect conditions. Right, right. Yeah, choosing the right time of year to do it versus having to do it where you can complete this whole trail. Yeah. Yeah, and I would think, I think that's kind of the name of the game with through hiking is like you're going to go to some awesome, some of the most beautiful places in the country, but you're not necessarily going to get there right at their peak time. And did you feel like the social aspect was very similar to the AT or do you feel like it was different? Yeah, it's definitely different. So on the AT, there's shelters, these like three-sided mm -hmm. wooden things every about 10 miles. And other than that, there's not really that many flat, not rocky, non-vegetated places. So like if you want a place to camp, you're going to go to the shelters or set up your tent near the shelters. Whereas on the PCT, it's a lot easier to find random camp spots. And so maybe in the desert, especially nowadays, there's a lot more like gathering around the spring like the one water source in 30 mm -hmm, miles sort right. of culture. But in some ways, it, it felt a little bit more independent than the AT. Yeah, so if you want seclusion, then maybe PCT is better for you. And if you want social, then maybe AT is better in that regard. Yeah, that, that's usually the, the rule of thumb. And if you really want more solitude, the Continental Divide Trail is a place to go. Research. You're yeah. doing this trail, quote unquote, for research. Right. What did that research look like? What did you bring with you to do that? And how did you acquire this research? I was looking at how different towns along the trail, their input or how they were stakeholders in policy that had to do with the trail. So a lot of it was interviewing shopkeepers, business owners, local government while I was in the towns resupplying anyway. And a lot of it was research before I started hiking and after I started hiking. And also looking at the land management patchwork that is along the PCT. Because, I mean, it's, some of it's Forest Service, some of it's Park Service, some of it's BLM, some of it's state, some of it's local, some of it's private with easements. I mean, a trail of that length has so many different stakeholders that trying to figure out how they all piece together was the big part of my research question. And so are you carrying like a notebook and pen and writing things down yeah. or did you record these conversations? And I was carrying a notebook and pen. In retrospect, I should have brought a recorder, but yeah, it was notebook and pen. A lot of it was following up after my hike as well. And so then what did you do with these findings afterwards? So that was, that was my uh, my master's thesis and it's, it's a chapter in a book called Large Scale Conservation, which looks at Yellowstone to Yukon, like very, very large conservation projects. And that's one of the things I love about long distance hiking in general is it's really hard to convince people to to conserve a like thousand mile swath of mm -hmm. land for elk or for wildlife migration i mean like some people are totally game but other people are like i don't know about this but when there's a hiking trail involved there's something happens in people's brains where there it's like there's a dream there's excitement there's inspiration and something about adding that human element to a conservation project of that size, it adds this extra layer that makes the conservation more personal. It makes it something that people are a little more excited about actually seeing through. Yeah, I agree. I think there's this element where to get people interested in conservation, you do have to get them there to experience it first. So whenever people say, let's set this aside, 
just for animal use, no human use. It's very hard for people then to imagine how that's valuable until they're allowed to go there and experience it and then realize, oh, this would be terrible if this was shopping malls and roads instead of this. One of the things I've often said is if you want to make someone understand why conservation is important, take them to Tunnel View in Yosemite and then just let them look at it and then imagine that that instead could be roads and shopping malls and high rises. You don't have to tell them anything. Just let them sit there and stare down the valley and see that. And if they don't understand in that moment why it's important that that should exist, there's nothing you're going to tell them that (laughs) will change their mind. And so I agree. It's exactly that thing. Having a trail there, letting people walk through it and experience it is super important. Removing people from conservation is kind of the most dangerous thing we can do for maintaining conservation. So, so I'll get off my tirade and let you talk again. So you've, you've done this, you're, you're doing the PCT, you're also doing research simultaneously, which I think is a very interesting thing because you're experiencing the trail as other people are, but you're also kind of probably getting this insight that other people aren't getting because you are talking to the people in the community in deeper conversations than most other people are. What do you feel like your findings were based on that? Yeah, I, I think part of my findings is that in many ways the hikers are the main way that people along the towns are interacting with any sort of that i mean hikers aren't decision makers but they might have some sway um on some decisions you know they're not talking to the forest service they're not talking to some of the other stakeholders so it's like the people in towns will talk to hikers decisions will be made kind of outside of of the towns and yet they end up influencing what happens in the towns. I would also say that some of the towns have had different good or bad experiences with hikers and there's no real way to police what hikers do. Mm-hmm. So if a hiker acts really rudely in a town, that totally colors how that town or at least that person thinks the trail, thinks of conservation related to the trail, right. thinks about spending money on the trail and it's just because of this one bad person. You know, it's like a it's it's a sort of tourism in a way. It's a t- sort of ecotourism, but it's definitely a way that that users impact this policy. Do you feel like this research that you did changed the way you look at the trail or change the way you you think it should be managed or anything along those lines? I think it it definitely influenced, especially right after I did it. You know, some of the early conservation decisions like in the 50s and 60s and 70s about where are we going to route these trails? Um, this is especially a case on the Appalachian Trail. The trails would actually literally go right through the t- towns. Mm-hmm. So they would stay up high and then be routed down in the valley, go to the town. And that's actually how a lot of European trail, longer trail systems are set up. And so when around the time when I was doing this research, I was thinking, oh, that would be really neat. It would really connect people to the land and to trails, and it would create another connection between the town and nature. I think the more I hike, the more I maybe I'm going back to the idea of like keeping the trail separate is different. But I think there's a lot of opportunities for spur trails into towns. I think the more connections and the more that we realize trails and nature and people are and towns are connected, um, the more we can think creatively about these broader conservation projects. Yeah, it's a tricky thing because it can go either way. Like the trail can be part of the town community and the town may love it or they may feel like it intrudes on what they already do or strangers are now coming in and manipulating the way they run and manage their own you know, home. Did you find that you were getting those sorts of mixed responses? Some places you're like, oh, these people love the trail. Then other places, oh, people really don't like what's been done here with this. On the Pacific Crest Trail, not nearly as much. Um, and some of that has to do with where the trail is routed, has been on public land or has been high up in the Sierra for or high up on the mountain ridge for so long that that was definitely a sentiment. On the Appalachian Trail, it's a little bit lower and it has a long history of some eminent domain. Just a, kind of like a more of a, a darker history with the relationship between the trails and people who who lived near the trails and so there are definitely towns i mean it's gotten a lot better over the decades but there's there's towns and there's legends of these towns where they don't welcome hikers because of that history mm-hmm. the pacific crest trail is better though and in general just maybe also because it's newer and people have been had had some time to think about problems that happen on the Appalachian Trail. So you start out on the Appalachian Trail, you go back to school, you do the Pacific Crest Trail, you do some research, kind of helps color your opinion of those experiences, and then what happens from there? Because I know those that you didn't stop at that point. Right, I know uh, that you've continued to go on and on and on. Yeah, I've uh, hiked at least one long distance trail every year, let's see, since 2007. 
So, yeah, I went and hiked the Continental Divide Trail. That was really, you know, it's kind of like the granddaddy of the Triple Crown Trails, those three trails. I started in Canada and went down to Mexico. It goes along the Rocky Mountains. It's hard. So as a person who's done the Triple Crown, who's done all three of the long trails in the U.S., let's hear about how that CDT differs from those other two. When I hiked the CDT, it was in this weird period where, the, the, I mean, the trail really wasn't very developed yet. They were still mapping it. It certainly wasn't signed. You would be on Great Trail, and then all of a sudden it would stop, and you'd be bushwhacking. And you would be on Great Trail, and you would have to get off that trail and start bushwhacking way off the trail because that's where the CDT went, and the trail you were on went in the wrong direction now. You would be on the trail, and you'd see a sign for the CDT, and it would be pointing in the wrong direction. (laughs) So navigation, much more important on this one. Oh, yeah. Managing your maps and watching your maps. Right, yeah. Um, Grizzly bears. Mm. You know, I started in Canada, and the first thing they have you do when you get a permit in Glacier National Park before you can even step foot on the trail is watch a 20-minute video about how grizzly bears are going to eat you. <laughs> so I like to imagine that is exactly how the video is focused. Hi, welcome to Canada, where grizzly bears are going to eat you. Here, here are some footage of grizzly bears eating humans. Have a great time on the trail. Yeah, and uh, you know, starting in Canada, started in June, so there's still quite a bit of snow. So it felt like all of those challenges of being in the Sierra. When you're in the Sierra on the PCT, you've had 800 miles to get back your trail legs and remember your routine and all that before you start getting hit by the snow. So you've got all of your snow gear. You have to remember how to navigate on snow, just all of those extra challenges. Plus there's grizzly bears and mosquitoes, and it's like all of these things. Uh, one of my friends describes the Continental Divide Trail as like on any given long-distance trail, there's maybe seven things you need to be watching for. Mosquitoes, navigation, water, heat, cold, whatever. On most trails, it's like one or two of those things going on at once. On the Continental Divide Trail, it's like, all of these things are going off at once, or five of these things are going off at once. So you're really juggling balls and trying to manage many different challenges. You know, I thought the AT or the PCT prepared me, and it was like, nope, all of these things at once. Let's go. Do you feel like you prefer one of the three over the others, or do you appreciate them all for their differences and similarities? Yeah, I often get... I mean, I don't have kids, but I often get asked, uh, you know, which one's your favorite trail? And I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's like choosing between your kids. Like, I appreciate all of them for what they have to offer. They're very different experiences. Plus a different time in your life when you do them, different different personal woes maybe you're going through. Yeah. That you then attach this memory to this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I always try not to ask favorites <laughs> because I'm the same way. Where yeah. It's like, I don't really pick favorites. I kind of, I hope that I pay attention to like the values of each varying thing. So... You've done all three of those, the the Triple Crown, and then you said that since then you do a long-distance trail every year. So people listening right now are thinking a question, and you probably already know what I'm about to ask you. How? Like, you have to set aside that time, you have to set aside that money, and you have to maintain your life somehow. How do you take, you know, multiple months each year to do on these long-distance trails? How do you make that happen? Yeah, I mean, that that's a, the time and the money question is is really big. And, you know, not to plug my book again, but this was one <laughs> of the things that I would read other books about long-distance hiking. I'd be like, seriously? Like, this is the first question I always get asked, even before someone can start planning and dreaming, like getting over this mental hurdle of, like, time and money. Like, that's a real, like, that is the real world. What I've done is take independent contract work so I can really take a contract, get paid, uh, and then not take the next contract and make time for hiking. And then recently I started, about actually about a year ago, I started Treeline Review, my own business, the website where we review gear. And so part of my job is I have to go out and long-term test gear and then report back about that situation, uh, whether stuff held up or not. I actually set up that company with my hiking partner, which means that we can't hike it together anymore, or at least for a while, (laughs) uh, which was kind of a a downside. But we both had this dream of creating a company where we could share what we've learned about hiking, but also build hiking into our business. It's definitely hard to manage those sorts of things. But yeah, I I find that what you're saying are some of the things that help. Like number one, if you look at it as a priority, instead of a thing that maybe you'd like to do that changes every perspective it's this is a priority this is something i have to make happen i need to find the way to make it happen and then you did the thing that i think helps which is figure out how not only make it a priority but make it an obligation right because now it's like well technically it's part of my job so that i can be good at this job that i've chosen and started for myself i need to do this and continue to do this 
or else I'm not an expert in this field and therefore no one should listen to me. Right, right. Long distance hikers, serial long distance hikers love talking to each other about how do you make the time and money thing work? Because, you know, among our small group, everyone seems to be hiking a different trail every year. And what ends up working for most people is they either do independent contract work, have their own business. But one thing is that everyone, especially people who have continue working for companies, they make themselves so valuable, so good as an employee that the people really want them back. And sometimes it takes a while. You know, I have a friend who's an engineer who is so good at her job, so on top of things that for a while she would say, okay, I'm quitting to go hiking. And they would say, we can't find someone who's as good as you. Will you come back after you're done with your hike? And I would say in general, going on a long distance hike might make you a better worker because you have something to look forward to. You have a reason to be working, that extra motivation, and also something, I mean, I think it's really human to take a mental break from working for a long period of time to reflect. Normally, long-distance hikers have to be, you know, set up a routine, be really diligent, responsible. I think all of those make someone a better employee. And I know you said you don't personally have children, but other than the challenges we've talked about, there are going to be people listening who are like, yeah, and I also have a kid, and I can't just leave my kid. Do you ever run into people bringing their children on these trails? Yeah, I mean, th- there's definitely some, you know, prominent stories of people who bring their kids on, on long-distance trails. I mean, the mileage isn't the same, but I'm sure it's really rewarding to be able to share something so beautiful with kids. You know, one of the people that I interviewed for my book has had three kids and hiked the Triple Crown. I was really inspired because his wife and his kids were able to, the way that they had set it up was they took ownership of the hike almost as much as he did. So his success was their success. I've talked with people who, uh, you know, like use it as a math lesson with their kids. Like, oh, how many miles did I do today? And how many, like there's ways to like really make it. So it's not like, oh, why is my parent gone? And more like, oh, this is really cool. I'm super into it. Like I have stories to tell about my parent ran into a bear and like Mm -hmm. it, it can be really kind of more of a family affair. I think an important thing for people to remember too is not everyone can take three months or a month or three weeks or whatever to do a trail like this, but all of these trails are broken into sections. Oh, and yeah. So you don't have to do the whole thing at once if exactly. you don't want to. Uh, you know, for me, I, especially starting a business, like I can't take off five months or four months, but I'm doing a month on the PCT. You know, the John Muir Trail, there's lots of people who can take off a, a week and do that over several years. And I would say the majority of long distance hikes are are done piece by piece. And that's something that, you know, I've been working on the PCT for maybe five years, uh, going back and re-hiking section by section. And it's always in the back of my mind every day. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get to this section. I can't wait to get this section. And, you know, like I've got this like map of like my gaps in my head. It's really exciting. It really gives me something to look forward to. Yeah, I like that point that you're making because I think that's one of the important things for people to remember is to set those sorts of goals and kind of set those things in the future so that they always have that thing to look forward to. Yeah. Otherwise, like one of the things I think is the most useless concept is the bucket list. Like unless you having a bucket list means you are actively taking steps to do each of these things on the list, it's just a list of things you're never going to do in your life. You're going to die and be like, oh, it's a shame I never did that bucket list. (laughs) So you kind of have to be proactive and then make that list and then start planning. Even if it's just one of them each year or one every so many months, if you don't plan it, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And that's what I love about setting a long distance trail as the bucket list is that after you've done one second it's easier to imagine what the next section will be like. Because I think a lot of times when you're like, oh, my bucket list is to go to Victoria Falls, like, and I've never left the country. Like, there's just so much more of a mental hurdle of like, I don't even know how to deal with this. Whereas if you set a long distance trail as your bucket list item, you're like, all right, it's just going to be like last time, except a little bit higher in elevation or a little bit lower or rockier or whatever. Um, So it's a little bit easier to imagine what that process will look like. Yeah, it's also good because you know I'm going, going to do these things for a long period of time. Well, I can do shorter things in preparation of that. And so then even if you have to wait a year to do something like the AT, you're working towards it during that year, doing shorter hikes and testing things and training. It feels like you are doing it year round. It's not just, oh, I have to wait. Right. a year to do a fun thing and then I have to live my terrible terrible life up until that moment. So <laughs> exactly. let's let, let's talk a bit about what's come after all of these because you you do a long distance trail every year you've now started a company, you've written a book. Let's do a quick tick list of like the trails that come to mind. 
that you've done, and then anything that immediately jumps to mind that stands out that you want to share about one of those trails. So after the Continental Divide Trail, I hiked the Benton Mackay Trail, which is named after Benton Mackay, who was the guy who dreamed up the Appalachian Trail, a huge hero of mine, uh, considered the first regional planner. And that almost parallels the Appalachian Trail through North Carolina to Georgia. So some of, through the Smokies, really, really beautiful area. And then I turned around. It ends at the same point, Springer Mountain, as the Appalachian Trail. And I turned around and hiked the Appalachian Trail. And that was actually where I uh, broke the women's self-supported speed record. Yeah, let's talk about that. So about <laughs> this thing that you're glossing past really quickly. Yeah, so uh, when I set off on that trail, you know, there were many things on that first Appalachian Trail hike that I felt like I hadn't hiked my own hike totally that way. I'd let the people who I was around, my hiking partners influence the decisions where we were going to stop. I really wanted to take everything I'd learned from that really difficult time on the Continental Divide Trail and translate it to a trail that didn't have those navigation issues, doesn't have grizzly bears. See what I could do. See with all that knowledge, everything I've learned, what I could do if it was just me making my own decisions with all of that knowledge. And so that ended up being the, the breaking the, the self-supported speed record, which, I mean, it wasn't even that long ago, but it, FKTs weren't quite as much of a thing back then. Um, so I was a little sketchy as to what the actual number was, but I had set a goal for myself and I met the guy who keeps track of the records up in New Hampshire was like, oh yeah, you're, if you continue on at this speed, you're going to beat the self-supported record. You know, I didn't have any expectations about sponsorships or media. Or, you know, no one was waiting for me on the top of Katahdin like there is now for FKTs. <laughs> you know, like I told my friends, but it really opened a lot of doors in terms of like people wanting to hear my story. Yeah, I mean, I'm really thankful for the opportunities. That, I mean, people, like even now there was a story in Outside that came out about me like uh, on Friday. And it was like, former record holder. I'm like, would you even care about this hike that I've done since that the story is about if I didn't hold this record? I don't know. What is the record? The record that I set was 80 and a half days. And that beat the former record, which had been on the books for almost 20 years by a week. That was in 2011. In 2016, Heather Anish Anderson, who's like a crazy FKT machine and a friend of mine, totally blew that out of the water, which is not unexpected at all. Um, And, you know, she was updating me along the way and we were texting and, you know, I was encouraging her. Yeah, I mean, FKTs has become a thing. and, And after I hiked the AT, I had attempted an FKT on the John Muir Trail and I thought I had it for like four months it turns out that the record that I had beat was the let me see if I get this right the (laughs) the record that I had beat was the unsupported record and I was self-supported because I had resupply I had like walked to a place where I had sent myself food and that was kind of when I was like the technicalities on this are so like I busted so so hard to beat that record and I was like you know what the the technicalities on this are so I felt very destroyed by like the (laughs) amount of of soul I had put into that thinking that I had beat the record and that was kind of when I was like hey FKTs like maybe maybe uh like maybe there's another way to express what I'm trying to express with the FKT experience without going with this thing that changes based on what other people do. Yeah, it kind of adds like this weird competitive element to right. a thing that typically is more about a personal growth instead right. of competition. Exactly. Yeah. But like you said, it then opens up doors for you. And so suddenly people are interested in talking to you because you hold some sort of record. Right. It, it's kind of silly how uh, media or, or uh, human psyche, I'm not sure which, works with the FKTs. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier, and I know that that you're known for, is kind of urban hiking. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Explain yes. to us what you mean by that. I mean, urban through hiking is probably a better description. So it's it's a long distance hike, a through hike. It's 100 or 200 or 250 miles long, but all within the confines of a city. And uh, I've done, I just counted this up, I think 13 different cities now. And I've hiked Denver twice or three times that's where I used to live but the idea is to come up with a theme I mean when you look at something like the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail the theme is like let's stay up on the crest of the tallest mountains urban hiking is is a different theme is also based on a theme um, connecting by foot LA San Francisco Seattle I was connecting all of the public urban stairways in Denver I did a hike where I walked to all of the breweries 
the theme can be very, very like choose your own, but mm-hmm. the idea of walking, experiencing the world at three miles per hour, meeting people along the way, seeing things, reflecting, all of those exploration remain the same as on a long distance trail. It's just a different theme. Yeah. So what are the logistics like for something like that? Because, you know, typically when you're doing a hiking trail, you're, you're going to backpack, you're going to camp along the way. Probably aren't a lot of places you want to camp in city limits. So are these the sorts of things where you stay in hotels and hostels and motels along the way? What what do you logistically tend to do? Yeah, it depends on the hike and it depends on <laughs> at what point in my life I've been. So when I first started urban hiking, I was pretty broke. I really would set it up so that I could stay with different friends along the way. So I would map my entire route based on where people I knew live and like floors I could crash on. Uh, now that I'm a little bit better off, I can have a little bit more flexibility with finding Airbnbs or hostels along the way. Sounds like something where maybe people could do couch surfing also. Have you ever tried that for I sh- these? I should. Uh, I, yeah, I really should try that. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, I'm curious how that would work out for like large metropolitan areas versus uh, vacation destinations. Yeah, that's a really good point. So what do you get from these urban hikes that you feel makes them worthwhile in a different way than what you get in wilderness hikes? I think it's really easy to to say, oh, forget about the city when I'm in nature. I don't want to deal with the city. It's just the place that I have to work. And the truth is we live in cities. Cities are the landscapes that we move through that we get to decide how we move through them and what they look like. And walking on foot gives me an understanding of what we prioritize or what a city prioritizes and who a city prioritizes and how getting around in those areas is different for different types of people depending oftentimes on how much money they have if they have money for a car if they have to take the bus if they have to walk um, if they have to take a bike or if they want to take a bike or if they want to walk so I really love that and I also but what I love more I mean that's because I'm kind of like a policy nerd <laughs> so I, I like seeing that seeing all this like land use policy and uh, urban planning policy but what I love is is looking at different people's gardens looking at people's plants looking at what people have done to create beautiful spaces, beautiful neighborhoods, and really surprising things with the the public stairways. I mean, some of these public stairways are like hidden behind bushes and trash cans. They're hidden between people's houses. And it's so it's like, it's like an Easter egg hunt almost. It's really, I describe it to long other like more traditional wilderness backpackers as being in Utah, going down through some slot canyons and you have to like count each of the canyons you see along the way and make sure you make the right turn. Like navigationally, in addition to physically um, in a city like L.A. or Seattle that has a lot of hills, it's it's navigationally a puzzle that, that's pretty fun to, uh, to, to work. And sometimes frustrating, sometimes rather confusing. You know, the other thing about cities is they often have layers between overpasses and bridges and hills and terraces. And, I mean, that's the same as being in some trickier, cliffed-out landscapes where you, you have to navigate. So I, I love that. You, and you said you've done this for 13 different major cities, right? Yeah. So you've probably got a pretty good sense of what works and doesn't work for those cities in a certain regard. And which of those are sincerely intended to be walking cities and which aren't? So what are some of your takeaways of the 13 cities that you've walked through long distance? Yeah. So I was invited by the city of Tucson to come out and hike a new trail system that they had created. And they were really, really proactive about building a trail system that was set up not just for bikes, but also for people on foot with some separate side gravel trails. And that was something that I I just really appreciated, um, how thoughtfully they had put in restroom infrastructure, um, shade areas, because it's Arizona, water, because it's Arizona (laughs) yet again, and how they had really managed keeping bikes and people away from cars. Sidewalks on both sides of the road, all throughout New York City, not having to stop to press the button, having drivers that are just educated about expecting walkers like in in New York City like that was so great crosswalk placement sometimes with crosswalks uh, in some cities it'll be like half a mile between two places where a pedestrian can get across a major road and so I actually referred that to as urban fords (laughs) because much like if you're trying to ford a river a raging river it's like you just kind of have to go for it and it could be dangerous and you could get swept out but you just have to go for it and a crosswalk becomes an urban bridge over this river 
but sometimes the bridges are far apart, as in the backcountry. And sometimes they're in disrepair, as yeah. in the backcountry. <laughs> That's true. So what does a day typically look like when you're doing an urban long-distance hike? How does it start? How does it end? How much mileage do you tend to do? Yeah, it depends on the route. So LA was my first uh, urban hike, and um, I had been invited to set kind of like a, an FKT on it. That That mileage was like, 35 to 40 per day and that was something I never wanted to replicate again most because in a city uh you know you want to go see that restaurant you want to go poke around in this garden you want to talk to these people um so I I try to keep my mileage you know like theoretically uh if I have a lot of time like a 15 to 20 mile day would be perfect New York was was 20 to 30 and a lot of it is it really depends on the hike in terms of like if I'm doing stairways or I mean, the brewery hike was, you know, I'd walk to the brewery, I'd drink a beer, I'd walk to the next brewery, I'd drink a beer. Yeah, you can't do 30 miles when you're drinking a beer every I few miles. I did do one 30-mile <laughs> day. Uh, I didn't finish until midnight. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things cities are well known for is, you know, higher incidence of crime. And do you ever find that you feel less safe when you're urban hiking, or do you feel like you have to worry about safety more so than you do in wilderness hiking. Yeah, and but you know, a lot of the safety issues that I'm worried about are cars. The The risk associated with being a pedestrian in a place that is built for cars is much greater than the dangers of being in the backcountry. It's, you know, like I, I'm a solo female hiker. Like I, I always am telling people like, oh, you know, statistically it's a much safer to be in the backcountry backpacking solo than it is to be walking around a city. You know, it's kind of like, oh, your chances of getting hit by lightning are one in a million. If you're the type of hiker who hangs out on 14ers all the time, <laughs> your risk goes up a lot more. Right. It's yeah. this sort of thing where like if you're in a city and you're hanging around places where there's no sidewalks and no crosswalks, like... Your chances of, of uh, having an incident are, are much higher. How do you plan these out? Is this something where you sit down with like Google Maps or something and then look around and see what's available? Like how did you find all the different stairwells? People, people love their public stairways because they're these hidden pedestrian infrastructures that they're, they're one of the only things that are built specifically for people on foot. There's usually not a road right next mm-hmm. to it. L.A. has a really vibrant stairway public stairway hiking community. They're not doing it as through hikes most of the time. They're doing it as a day hike. Through connecting with these local urban hiking communities, I've been able to get a lot of data for the stairway hikes. Some of the other hikes, um, I like Portland, I crowdsourced. I did all the public stairways. Um, there are some guidebooks too to public stairways that I was able to use for Seattle and for um, San Francisco. I crowdsourced where should I go in Portland. And that was a really fun way to to, to get my followers also to be like, hey, you have to check this out. This is a mm-hmm. hidden thing nobody knows about. This is So it was a really fun way to see the city more like a local would. Yeah, what would you like to see come from this kind of urban hiking? Well, um, ideally, what I'd really like is people who are urban planners, landscape architects, city planners to think a lot about pedestrian infrastructure and bike indus- infrastructure and making non-motorized infrastructure safer. Not just safer, but also more pleasant. You know, even if you have a busy boulevard that has sidewalks on both sides, if it doesn't have trees, if it doesn't have drinking fountains, if it doesn't have restrooms, public restrooms that are available, those are the challenges of being a human that moves. Right. And I really would like people to start walking around more, thinking about walking, not just as the horrible way to get from point A to B and more of like a fun thing that we could do that's free. I know personally for me, unfortunately, most of the places I've lived, like I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, now I live in Los Angeles. Most of the places I've lived if not all the places I've lived, are very much revolve around moving around by vehicle. Yeah. And anytime I get to an area where I can move around on foot, it is such a more enjoyable experience. At some point you realize this walking isn't a hassle. It's giving me the opportunity to see more, experience more, and actually become part of where I am instead of just moving from point A to point B and disregarding everything in the middle or recognizing it as the hassle that I have to pass through to get to point B. Yeah, and it's fun too, especially if you're walking the same thing where you'll notice minor changes like, oh, that person added a plant or <laughs> looks like they haven't got their mail for a while or like, hey, this tree is blooming. Just all of these little things that, that remind you that you're present, that you're alive, that you're here. And I think another thing is we were talking about how some people say, well, how do you, how can you do these long distance hikes? How can I make this happen? How can I find the time, the resources, the money? And some of these longer urban hikes, maybe that's more manageable. Maybe start there and try that out first. I'd like to transition before we get to the end here to talk about your book because it's come up a few times. So let's hear about that book. 
why you wrote it and how people can get it. The book is Long Trails, Mastering the Art of the Thru-Hike. I mean, it's available on Amazon. It's available at, at many booksellers, outdoor gear stores. If your local library or gear store doesn't have it, you should ask them to, to stock it. <laughs> the, the goal for that book was really to create a book that was a dream to reality thru-hiking book and to really go through a lot of the nuts and bolts and the questions that are not just, I mean, there are sections about what do I do about lightning, what about the gear, but really talk about the full experience. What do you do from that first moment where you're like, you know what would be really cool is if I went and hiked the John Muir Trail. And, and really to get people thinking like, how do I make the time? How do I make the money? To answer the questions that you don't even realize are questions. So the stuff on the covers, you know, has the things that you know you're going to have to figure out. Food and gear and dangers of hiking or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Really, what most people say is the hardest part about thru-hiking is all the stuff they didn't know to ask questions about before that come up along the way. Middle of the thru-hiking, you're like, oh, I wonder how I solved this. And then, what, what are some examples of those things? Yeah. Or do they have to buy the book to find out? Well, I mean, <laughs> the thing is there's so many examples of, of things that you wouldn't even think would be issues. I will send food to myself. I'm allergic to peanuts. and Also, I'm horrible at making decisions when I go to a grocery store when I'm hungry. So <laughs> I send food to myself. And um, navigating some of the post like post office hours or how do I label my boxes like some of that is like you won't even think to ask you know managing the social stuff like most people they go out on a through hike and they expect it to be just me and the trees and nature and mountains and it's like there's all these people and I have to like know what to expect with with group dynamics and all this stuff and I mean that is a prime example of something you don't expect when you start putting together your planning and reading a book on like how to backpack do you have any plans for future books do you, are you planning a book maybe about urban long-distance hiking? I really need to write that book. Uh, I have a book about, it's a guidebook on waterfall hikes in Southern California that's coming out probably around Christmas time or before Christmas time, which was really fun to work on, especially after all the rains we had this year. So before we wrap it up, let's talk about the future. What do you have planned for the immediate future? What are your goals ahead from here? Growing Tree Line Review is definitely one of the big things that I'm working on right now. And so hikes that allow me to test out new gear and report from the field are something that I'm interested in. Urban hiking also, I have a a trip with Sierra Club. They're doing their first uh, urban hiking fundraising event. Normally their fundraising events are someplace on on a traditional backcountry hike. And I don't know how they got the idea to go with an urban hike, but they said, okay, well, we got to ask Liz how to, how to do this. So that's something I'm really looking forward to is working with more organizations about getting urban hiking as a thing that's on their radar to get more people out moving, exploring, thinking like they would in the backcountry, except without the long commute to get to the trailhead. So let's tell everybody where the places they can go online and elsewhere to keep up with what you're doing and find out what's going on and support your book and various other things. Most active on Instagram at Liz Thomas Hiking. That's no spaces, all lowercase. And also Facebook, same thing, at Liz Thomas Hiking. And I also am very active on Treeline Review, which is treelinereview.com, and Treeline Review, no spaces, all lowercase on both Facebook and Instagram. And then my book is called Long Trails, Mastering the Art of the Thru-Hike. Won the National Outdoor Book Award for Best Instructional Book. That book is, it's available uh, at Barnes & Noble, at Amazon. Many local gear stores and independent booksellers have it as well, which has been really fun. Hopefully your library has it. I always <laughs> I always check, because it's one of those books where like I really want to see it in libraries. Right. Because it's, it's meant to really, like, I've got this spark of an idea to go on a thru-hike. I'm going to go check my library first before I like actually start spending money on <laughs> trying to like on learning more about through hiking. So I, I love seeing it at libraries and I hope more libraries have it. All right. So the thing I like to do, the last thing I like to do here is ask you if there's anything we haven't covered you want to mention or if there is a thought you'd like to leave everyone with. Because this is this is an outdoor podcast, I really would like to encourage people to try urban hiking in some sense. Set a point A and point B, either starting where you live or two cool places in your community. And take that same mindset that you would going into the outdoors. If you get lost, you've got your phone, you can call a friend, you can call Lyft or Uber. And take that moment to come to peace with your landscape and with your body and your mind walking through an urban landscape. Well, thank you very much for joining me here. Thanks for recording this. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. for sure.
And since it has been four months since I last spoke with Liz, here to give us an update in Liz's own words is Erica. Since I last saw you, I led an urban hike with Sierra Club from their Angeles chapter headquarters on Wilshire, past MacArthur Park, into downtown LA, through Grand Park, over the Vista Hermosa Park, through historic Filipino town, and back to K-Town. It was the first national fundraising event that was an urban hike that I know of. I was so proud that almost 50% of the 100-plus participants had never been on an urban hike before. It was an honor to provide a means by which they could reflect on the city's role on the environment in general, just like hiking on a traditional trail gives us a space to reflect on humans' impact on the natural world. And also, the Southern California Waterfalls book just came out. And that book she references is The Falcon Guide to Hiking Waterfalls in Southern California. It is available now. Should you want to purchase that new book or her other book, Long Trails, you can find both of them online on Amazon or you can run to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 90 with Liz Snorkel Thomas. And there you will find links to everything we talked about in today's show, including links to purchase those books and photographs of Liz on her hiking adventures. And should you want to leave us a message about this episode, past episodes, a future episode, you can do that a number of ways. Send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 818-925-0106. And please, please do us a favor here at the show and go to your podcast purveyor of choice. Make sure to subscribe and please rate and review the show and share it with someone you know. A quick reminder to those of you who have hiked or intend to hike the John Muir Trail, please do call us at 818-925-0106 and leave us a story up to three minutes about your experience. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced and recorded with additional editing by me, your host, Jason Milligan. It was edited by Griffin Davis and, as always, brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show... Come back December 16th for Lee Trebitich. He is a person I met on the John Muir Trail and the person who gave me my trail name. He is a mountaineer, ice climber, and the VP of marketing at the only company in the world who can make 100% alpaca gear, Appalachian Gear Company. And he will be the first of four people featured this season who live in North Carolina. Come back December 16th, Lee Trebitich. See you then.